Sonic States. Stuff for 500 bucks. Mm. Yeah. Hold, hold on, guys. I've just, this is my embarrassing moment. I've got to press record because we were talking for so long beforehand. Kind of screwed up. <laughs> so I'd just like to say, in the, uh, I'm, I'm blushing and I'm in an empty room. I can't believe it. But this is it's starting over. So uh, I'd just like to say, uh, welcome to Sonic Talk number f- number 59, just previous to 60. I'm going to talk really fastly because I, I actually did, I thought I'd recorded this, but the recorder wasn't switched on, so I'm going to start again. So I'd just like to welcome Rich Hilton from Connecticut. How are you doing, Rich? Very well. Good morning. Good morning. Mark Tinley, how are you doing, Mark? <laughs> Hello. Everybody's I'm laughing. never going to get that sideways um, thing back in, am I? I, do, I know. I'm terribly sorry about that. There was some good stuff in there, but um, sadly, it's gone the way of... <laughs> of these things um and uh let's say hello to john musgrave as well hi there and uh, dave spears from g4 software how you doing dave terrible (laughs) 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 and also pj tracy from minneapolis good morning nick how you doing right that we've got those out of the way and i'm rather embarrassingly we have to go over some old ground because uh, i screwed up recording but uh we're talking, we were previously talking about the Logic 8 announcement, um, which has literally just come out. We didn't have it in our list of topics to talk, but uh, we have been speculating that it's been coming for a long time, and it is here. And uh, Rich Hilton was just saying what good value it might well be for, for 499 bucks. it looks like. Well, yeah, it looks like a whole lot of software to me for uh, the $500 they're asking for. Um, t- interface enhancements that obviously reflect they're having paid some attention to Sony's Acid and Ableton Live. And uh, just uh, other software tools, I believe they give you a uh, soundtrack as well, don't they? The uh, yeah, Soundtrack Pro 2. That looks quite good, yeah. Uh, just a whole lot of stuff for that much money. And it actually looks like they've made some nice operational improvements. If you're uh, looking at the editing uh, descriptions briefly, it looked makes me want to take a look at it. Yeah, um, that was very good, Rich. That was almost verbatim what he said last time, when before I had realized I'd stopped recording. <laughs> Um, yes, I, I would agree. I mean, it doesn't say anything about whether they've actually rewritten the audio engine, which was something that um, we it, were sort of rather hoping for. I didn't see that. Did anyone see that? It doesn't say anything about that directly, but there's various things within there which imply it might be considerably different. Certainly, like the project length has been increased. There's always a limit on the maximum length you could run as a project. And it also says internal audio resolution is either 32 or 64 bit, and I don't think it was that before. Well, I might be wrong. I think you could freeze at 32-bit before. Yeah. Uh, what else was there? There was something else on there which kind of... They've changed the, the, the way the audio takes are arranged. I think you can do multiple takes. I don't know whether that would be... An right. Region-based take recording, they called it. So right. Region-based take recording. That's it. That's yeah. what they call it. Does that mean it works like Pro Tools now? It no, seems. That looks it, like it, that. Creates nice. full it creates a folder of takes that you can then draw from or colorize or do whatever... Yeah, the, mm, sounds like they might just be um, automating stuff that you can already do there. I mean, yeah, I'm right. sure if they'd rewritten the audio engine, they'd be saying, hey, we've rewritten the audio engine in really big kind of bold statements. Maybe so. Maybe that's so. a question that's been asked of them. Has anybody taken a look at this main stage thing that they've, tried, that they've introduced? It, uh, yeah, they're yeah. going straight for the live guys who already have Macs, they want you to be able to use this thing on stage. They're providing instruments, and uh, it's pretty impressive. They're go- kind of going after the core Muse Research, you know, small hardware-based, you know, host-based kind of 
virtual instrument on stage market here. And this looks like a really intriguing product because they've already got a whole bunch of people out there with the hardware necessary to run it. Mm, no, I haven't yeah. seen that one. I haven't had a chance to research it, unfortunately. But uh, Yeah, main stage looks great. And the other thing is um, you've got remote control of Logic now as well. So you, that, that could be useful for live performances. Yeah, right. Using the little Apple remote. You could hit play and stop. Yeah, that's kind of cute, actually. I mean, I guess if you're across the room, it's nice to be able to do. Dave, did you um, did you have anything? Because you're a Logic user. Will you be ordering yours immediately? Uh, yeah, we have to. Oh, what? By Are order of Sir Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the, the uh, lack of dongle is the thing that uh, is rather fascinating as well. Well, that is interesting. I'd be interested to know whether they're, they're going to do site-type CPUs or is it just going to be a serial mm. number? Because that would be a biggie, I guess. Cause I it's use a mine serial on. number on there, I think. Mm. Yeah. I think it said serial number. Surely, um, isn't that going to mean that their stuff is just going to be, well, I mean, not to uh, put too to find a point on it, just copied willy-nilly? It's, sorry, it says serial-based copy protection. I don't know whether, that, whether that's slightly different. I suspect it'll be the same as like Final Cut Pro and stuff like that, which so is just serial number. It's not registered to, a, to, a, to the hardware? No. I'll bet it is. I'll bet it's more like native instruments the way they do it now, where they get a, a machine ID for every authorization. Yeah, a mm. yeah, sample tank works like that. I yeah. actually like the way that works. Do you? I find that annoying. Yeah. Well, as long as you get more than one machine. Because the thing is, is if you buy you into it... You can have three. You have three, I Right. Well, you buy into it, and then, you know, you, as, as is our want, you know, we're changing computers on a regular basis, and then after you've done three machines, then you've got to kind of... I don't know. Go um, how you prove that you're that you need another one. I think, I think they're pretty cool about it. I think if you request more IDs and give them a bloody good reason why, I'm sure they're okay about it. I mean, if your computer blows up or something, it's not really your fault, is it? So, no, I know it's not. But um, when that tends to happen, you know, it's a Sunday and you need you've got another machine ready, but you can't license your. You know, I mean, it just they'll have to be careful on that because that could really screw some people up. Is all I'm trying to trying to say i suppose so um looking at the utilities that they're offering they've got a uh, an impulse response utility for their brand new quote world-class convolution reverb uh they've got wave burner they've got an apple loops utility that creates apple loops out of stuff and uh they've got some sort of uh interesting compression encoding thing uh, including uh, ac3 surround format Sorry, the Apple Loops they're going to have to improve because the Apple Loop utility sucks. It takes ages and ages and ages to, to render stuff and it's got a very sort of sh- uh, um, random lengths and limits depending on the complexity of the material. It's quite chewy to use, I, uh, or at least when I've used it. Still, to include all of this for 500 bucks is mm. an incredible amount of stuff. I was just going to say, I quite like the Convolution Reverb. Is it still Space Designer? Because I use that quite a lot. And I've yes, played that's around with it quite a lot. We used to crash my power PC as soon as I loaded it, so I haven't used it that much recently. But Delay Designer mm, looks quite good as well. Doesn't. Has anyone seen that? No, I haven't had a chance to get there. There's obviously a load of stuff in there. PJ, you're being very quiet. I know we're, we're, all, we're all kind of on a bit of a Mac fest here, and I know you're, you're a PC <laughs> guy. But this isn't likely to, um, to swing you, is it? Well, you know, it, it looks great. And I don't, I don't know, maybe sometime in the next uh, half a click or so I should... Uh, consider getting a an iMac and and getting back into logic i mean for $500 i'm i'm with rich that's a lot of software you don't necessarily need to get an iMac you can just run osx on a pc there's a way of doing that there are, there are ways i mean you're not supposed to which obviously we know but it is it isn't that simple 
I think the drivers are the difficult bit, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think you can do it, but it's a question of, you know, how how much time you have in your life. I was going to say, just looking through the specs here, there's a couple of things in here that will appeal to Pro Tools users. Firstly, you can now select the bus as a source for recording, which you couldn't ever do on Logic, and which is oh. one of the great things about Pro Tools. Right. If you're running lots of multiple Fantastic. tracks, you could create lots of separate submixes by routing your buses back into tracks, which is great. The other thing is it's got this snap to transient, which is something that was also really useful on Pro Tools for getting... Yeah, your transients lined up and stuff. So that's oh. quite interesting. They're both ideas that I'm guessing they've kind of borrowed from Snitched. that. See, that's one particular feature in Cubase that I that I wish they would implement into the software is the busing architecture is a little archaic, and you're you're not able to do that type of thing. You're not able to bus any track to any other track, and the order of the tracks, the order in which you instantiate tracks, is. Um, you know how you can bus is predicate on the order in which you instantiate mm. tracks, and so I have to use third-party utilities in order to be able to do you know more complicated busing for submixes. There's also that you can see two channel strips at a time in the in the main window, which means that if you've got an associated aux output or um, busing, then you can see both of those objects paired together when you're editing, um, which is quite useful. I mean, the way I work, I, I bust things and record them because, or, or bounce them down or whatever because it's sort of, uh, the freeze track thing is a little bit unreliable and does all sorts of weird things. And when you unfreeze and refreeze tracks, suddenly things that are on one track get into other tracks, sound and stuff. Really? I've so never the freeze track thing seems a buggy, yeah. Maybe they fix that as well. I mean, I tend to bounce down all of my sounds as I go along and then I have a palette of things that I just need to sort the levels out of for my mixes. So. Right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of kind of good thought gone into it. So, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of information, QuickTime movies and stuff over at Apple. Um, I got this from Apple, so uh, I'm guessing it must have just gone up. So um, get over there and have a look. So by the time this podcast goes live, which will be uh, Thursday the 13th of September, um, it should all be out in the open. Do you suppose it'll work with the new duet by Apogee? Duet? Is that the... <laughs> <laughs> it might do, yeah, because this is the new two-channel audio interface. The reason we're laughing, uh, for listeners, is because we were ta- we were talking about the new Apogee and we were sort of wondering why, you know, it's 500 bucks for a two-channel interface. I was speculating that perhaps it was just because it's got the word Apogee on it, when in fact it probably, you know, in terms of hardware, it might be worth a little less because it only goes up to 96K... And it's Firewire, and um, you'd imagine it could go to 192 if it was certainly that much, and Firewire. Does anyone use Apogee stuff? Mm, I used to. No, not anymore. I, no, I used, used to. to. Why used to? Well, I had AD8008 SE interfaces back in the days uh, when the best Digi was offering was the uh, 888. Yeah. Uh, you just had far superior sound quality and uh, quite nice switching options and nice routing options, being able to put different... Ambus cards and the thing. It was a really outstanding product. It was also quite expensive, but it was... What do you use now? I use Digidesign's 192 now. And that's fine, yeah, because they've improved it. Yeah, it, it sounds... I, I can't say it sounds as good or slightly better or slightly worse, or I couldn't even probably characterize. I've never compared them side by side, but it sounds fine. Mm-hmm. Sorry, PJ, you were talking... You were saying you used Apogee, is that right? Yeah, I was affiliated with a studio that used... Um, the 88,000s as well, and then uh, they bought uh, one of the eight-channel Rosettas. Uh-huh. And I like the sound of the of the Apogee uh, converters, but 
in my studio, I just just because I'm I'm doing I, I'm I'm basically a solo act here. Uh, I use the Emu 1820M, which oh, is yeah, the yeah. same the same converter as the the Digidesign 192. So right. I I like the sound of that quite a bit. There's obviously quite a close affinity between Apple and Apogee, apart from the fact they both begin with A and a P. Do you think there's anything? going on there or is it um, purely platonic <laughs> well obviously they've been marketing the apogee products with logic for uh, some time now in the press yeah and i think that's where we get that impression um apogee I, I don't know what kind of deal was struck but in you see a lot of ads with apogee converters next to uh, logic pro but i did have the ensemble on trial for a while ago when it came out but that one took ages to appear i remember seeing it at the show a year and a half ago. Yeah, that's right. And, and I finally got actually got a unit probably December. It might even have been January this year. And it sounded good. But, I mean, the, the interesting thing about it was the sort of fact you have a very specific window within Logic to control it, and that was the difference between it and anything else. Mm. That's kind of is a bit. It is genuinely more integrated into Logic than any other. And host. are they going for like zero, lots of zero, zero latency option? I mean, is, did it have much of that? Because that's the, obviously that's what Pro Tools has in you know over everything is the zero latency or very very low fixed latency it stuff. It had a hardware monitoring system, not dissimilar to the sort of thing you get in a Moto interface, but it wasn't as good as one in a Moto interface. Mm, yeah, there's a key mix. You think called key mix in Moto? Yeah, which allows you to be very you do pretty extensive um, software mixes. It wasn't as good as that. But it was the same kind of idea. Dave, Apogee guy? No. No, RME. Yeah, I, I must say, I'm not an Apogee guy. I mean, I, I I did lust after them, but when I heard them, they weren't neutral enough, and I thought, you know, if you've got, like, a multiple output or a multiple input system and you're record, layering, you know, that very slight coloration of sound upon coloration of sound, then you're going to get a sound that maybe, you, which is, if you want, is absolutely fine. But it just struck me as being, you know, perhaps something that would be hard, harder to undo than to create. Well, perhaps they could be said to be the Neve of digital coloration. But tying back into this Apple uh, marriage, uh, this Duet product appears to be directly uh, focused towards Logic, Soundtrack, and GarageBand users, and they have an, a secondary application that allows it to be controlled by other car, core audio applications. Right. So they're actually advertising it as being uh, fully compatible with, and there are some control functions that uh, interface directly with Apple's software. Interestingly enough, it's also 499. Hmm. Which means which means the street price is going to be you know 100 150 bucks less than that, and that kind of makes it apart from those ugly and thin white cables that stick out of it pretty attractive. Okay, well um, there's our sort of Apple portion, perhaps done for now. Um, so yeah, get over to Apple if if logic interests you. There's a whole bunch of new stuff in there, and uh, it's going to take us a little while to disseminate this. And sadly, we only had five minutes before the start of the podcast. But go over and check it out for yourself. Um, I've just been on the Apple UK website, and if I buy Logic on the Apple UK website, I can buy Logic Pro 7 for £699, which is $1,400. But I can't buy Logic 8 on there. Hey, well, no, but Mark, if you buy that now, it means you can get a discount on the Logic Pro 8. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, an upgrade. For No, no, I think it's a mere $59 if you bought it today, for instance. Do you think if you oh. did actually buy a Logic Pro 7 today on the Apple website, they'd actually contact you and say, you don't want this? I think they would, actually. I like yeah, to think they would. They would. Yeah, let the, <laughs> let, the, let the sale go through and then tell you. Well, 
Well, yeah. I can click on this. Buy with one click. I sh- no, don't I do shouldn't do that. <laughs> don't do it, Mark. Um, well, I know you always wanted a backup dongle, but that's a hell of an expensive way of doing it. No, it's all right. It oh, asked cool. me to sign. Thank God for that. You know you want to. Yeah. Don't do that again, no. The next, the next question <laughs> was, do you want to set up your one-click account, I hope? It was, yeah. Yeah, have you... I don't know if you've heard the news, but Joe Zawinul has passed away. Um, I think it was either yesterday or early this morning. So, and that's a kind of sad day, really, because he was a kind of fairly major influence in terms of electronic keyboardism. And um, I just remember seeing a documentary of him, kind of a couple of few months ago, where he was kind of doing one-handed press-ups and stuff, you know. But uh, he obviously just finally succumbed. I think he was seventy-five. He was one of my heroes. He was gigging in July, so not so long ago. Well, I suppose you'll have access to a lot of vintage keyboards up there. I certainly hope so. (laughs) My condolences to his family and his... I know a bunch of former bandmates that I feel I should call. Bad news indeed. Not the BMF.com. I know this is very UK-centric, but I was talking to Yamaha... um, uh, Well, well, actually, it was Dave Robinson who said, oh, they took an ad out in um, ProSan News. I think it was ProSan News. Um, saying not the BMF, and uh, we sort of wondered what it might be. And I talked to Yamaha UK, and it's a kind of the beginnings of a virtual trade show, which is just purely for their dealer network and, um, you know, to sort of demonstrate products and, and marketing initiatives. But, you know, at this stage, he, he was kind of really into the idea of using the kind of second life model and having pavilions where people could kind of demonstrate products and stuff. And I just thought, would it, would it work? I personally could do without going to, say, Birmingham. I'd rather go to Second Life, even though I don't enjoy that much. I think it might make a lot of sense. I'll be there. I was thinking in terms of a theory, you could just set up a load of rooms, people just show up and they sign in to be able to watch the demo, and that means that they can have a real-time chat with it. So you might be demoing to 10 or 12 or, you know, 1,000 people at once, and then they can just be firing questions at the person who's doing the demo, and you go, right, and there's another one in 10 minutes. It's kind of essentially going to give you most of what you could get from a trade show. Second Life are very much championing the idea of live music in in their world or whatever, yeah. I mean, every time you sign into Second Life, it says, live shows happening all the time, go to such and such to find out more details about live shows that are happening right now, and you can go to go and watch people play, bands play, so theoretically it's just an extension of that with a with a product to showcase, but I can't quite see how they're going to represent that product's physical form properly in Second Life. Unless they get some absolutely amazing designers to make it look exactly yeah, like I think you'd have to have a video stream coming through it. So, you know, there'd be a video stream of the product demonstration. It wouldn't it couldn't be in in virtual. That would just be crazy because it would cost a fortune to model and also it wouldn't be real time, would it? Be great as the audio bandwidth reduces. Listen to the aliasing on this synth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that's true. I think it could work to a degree and it may be something that would work more for um, you know, maybe not a whole uh, trade event where, you know, it might be just kind of say someone's rolling out a specific product, you do it on demand that way rather than, you know, attend um, another trade show. It's funny you should say that, Dave, because I was thinking about this earlier on today. I've got a friend who sends me music that he's written from time to time. And whenever I listen to it, um, all of his cymbals and his drums and stuff all have this really crunchy sort of MP3 quality to them because he works on a multi-track um I think it's a track Sony compressed digital recorder thing. And, and he sort of, I think he sort of prefers the sound of that. If you play him something that's too clean, he doesn't really like it. He's like, Oh, I don't know. I don't really like the sound of that. So as these 
kids with their mobile phones get more and more used to that tone and it becomes something that they like the sound of because they're familiar with it. And isn't music going to have to go in that direction? So someone is going to have to invent a synth with lots of horrible aliasing to put in to to put in the mix to sort of fit in with what people expect to hear. They don't want the clarity. We've discussed the tinny sound that comes out of people's mobile phones on the bus before, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have. But the but the thing is, is you know, in in terms of music production, I mean, Bitcrusher within Logic, which is a a a standard effect it comes with, you know, it's quite a quite a or has been certainly quite a contemporary sound. Doesn't go far enough in my book, but don't you think? (laughs) I'm joking. I want more. One one bit, one case. Not accurate enough. It's just not (laughs) just not lo-fi enough for you. I want more variation of lo-fi-ness. In the very early 90s, I um, was on a group called rec.pro.audio. It was a news group, wasn't it? Yes, Rec Audio Pro. And I kept ranting on there about wanting a plug-in that sounded like an Ensonic Mirage, or I used to have this ZX Spectrum sampler. And I think Hyperprism were one of the first people to do it, and I was in touch with them a lot and beta-tested the original Decimator plug-in. I don't know if anybody else did it around that time, but I think I might have been instrumental in making that um, kind of sound, sound. Oh, good for you, come, into, come into general use, maybe a bit more. Oh, well, good for you, mate. I think I was instrumental in um, in, in doing really crappy house records. Taking old disco records and putting a house beat to them. I think I <laughs> helped, helped with that. I've got a terrible problem with the baby at the moment. Um, This is completely off topic now. Um, (laughs) You know that that, um, house record that goes, check this out, too black, too strong. Yeah. Well, he's picked up. Is it? Well, he's picked up on the too black, too strong. So we're wandering around town (laughs) and he keeps going out with too black. Too strong, <laughs> and I don't want. I mean, I'm hoping that we don't bump into two. You know, some black person that's going to take offence to it. Who I'm going to have to sit down and explain. No, really, he's not. You know, I'm not racist. He's not racist. We're, it's a song, and if you know, Mark, it will happen. You better rehearse your speech now. Is all I can say. <laughs> Only because they always will. Mummy, why is that woman so fat? You know that sort of stuff. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, seriously, he'd be the—they'd be everybody'd be on the floor listening to that. That's so funny. <laughs> you want to sample that, Mark? I'll sample it. Yeah, I'll sample it. And I'll bit crush it. it as well. Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production, producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles, accurate professional studio monitoring systems, incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers and the latest N-Series digital mixing studios featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk let's do scarby then um i don't know a great deal about it but uh, i do know that um scarby has released uh an instrument called is it black bass yeah yeah which is kind of based around the kind of 
the sound and the style of uh, Bernard Edwards, if, if I'm correct. And now, as far as I understand, Scarby is a bass player of some note who's also had a, um, a hand in quite a number of contact-based instruments. And Rich, um, you mentioned this about this because um, working with Nile Rogers, you had some sort of consultation process involved in this. And I just wonder if you could tell us about it. Well, I became of, uh, aware of Scarby through being a customer of theirs. Uh, it was recommended to me as an outstanding source of keyboard sounds. And so I started out purchasing his... Uh, electric piano product which uh is to my mind if if what you need is a genuine road sound there is nothing finer and i was so incredibly impressed and i began to get in touch with thomas about his instruments and uh we got into a conversation about his love of chic music and uh then it turned out he was in development on this black bass project and that he uh felt it in his heart to be dedicated to bernard edwards and would Nile feel comfortable about that kind of thing being said and what does he think of it and all this and uh, we've been working with it for quite some time and uh, we I, I can't say I or anybody in our organization had anything to do with the sound of this thing because it's all Thomas Garby and it's incredible what the range of articulation present uh, if I'm not mistaken when you load an instance of Scarby Black Bass you're accessing a bank of 4,000 samples. Wow. And uh, it's, it's remarkable what you can do with some clever MIDI programming. You can actually determine uh, your hand position on the neck per note. You can uh, determine how the fingers uh, alternate on the right hand in terms of the way the strings are struck. You can do slides of indeterminate length uh, or, you know, determined by you. In other words, uh, you, can, you can do un- all kinds of unbelievably expressive things. And if you listen to his demos, uh, you can sort of get a sense for... Yeah, they're mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you'd, be, you'd swear that it was a guy playing that well. Dave, <laughs> Dave Spears, you're a connoisseur oh. of sounds. What do you say? They've got a fantastic reputation for the road stuff. Um, I don't own it, but I do know a lot of people who've used it and swear by it um but yeah bass stuff you know i always found it fascinating particularly as a drummer i use trilogy quite a lot um but if this is half as good as rich says then uh, they'll have another customer i used to use trilogy too i still use trilogy but not for this what what bass is it sample from rich uh he used a music man bass with flat wound strings okay and he's got he's uh, working on amped versions as well yeah i mean I've, since i moved on to an intel mac obviously i can't use trilogy and haven't been able to for months because it's not been rewritten for the Intel Mac yet. And um, I've got a great bass sample on Independence, which is the Yellow Tools sampler. I haven't found anything I really like yet, so I'm really interested in this one. Sounds like it, you know, because a lot of a lot with a lot of the bass patches, you find the thing that lets them down is, is the that you can't fine tune the articulations, get it to play. You end up sort of trawling through various patches trying to find one that will sound the way you want, even if it's not the sound you want. If you get my meaning, it does the things you want it to do, but even yeah. if the sound isn't quite there. But, I mean, $100, I think it is, isn't it? $99. You know, that's kind of, if it really does the business and you don't have to go hunting around looking for a bass patch every time you want a bass patch uh, that you can play and and make sound real, then, you know, for a lot of things I do, that'd be fantastic. I was upset about that. I actually wrote to Thomas and said, how can you sell this thing for 100 bucks?" He said, you pretty much have to in this day and age. Oh, yeah, I guess. You know, I can say this much about it. Um, I bought Trilogy when it came out, and um, I love I love that product. But I bought um, Scarby's J Slap and Finger, which is his previous bass library for Contact. 
um, released in 2000. I bought it in late 2005, and I, I never go to Trilogy anymore for electric bass sounds because that product, which is now seven years long in the tooth, also has a mind-boggling array of articulations right under your fingers, you know, with the, with the mod wheel and key switching. And you can, you can make that bass library sound like a fantastic bass player playing a real bass. And it's, if the black bass is an improvement on this, uh, I'm all over it. What's, what are the tonal variations? I mean, can you mess around? How does that work? Or does it just employ the filtering of the contact engine? It's, it's the sound of a direct recorded bass. But you have control, like, like Rich said, over um, finger position on, on each string, which string you're playing, whether or not um, you switch from one string to another string based on where you are on the keyboard. Um, and then as far as tonal variation, that's up to you. You know, EQ right, and compression. Okay. It just gets and, you a kind uh, of amp simulation. He's got some brilliant guy writing, doing script writing in terms of the execution of these various uh, uh, key-triggered articulation events. It's really quite something. And this this graphic that comes along with it that shows you the bass neck, and you're literally watching what's going on, and you can spot like a wrong string being played at a particular point, and you can go back in and tweak it. It's really it's graphically remarkable as well. It, you can actually see what's going on on a bass neck. You're kind well, of an ad- uh, <coughs> you're at an advantage there, though, aren't you? Because you can play a keyboard and a guitar, whereas um, I can play a guitar. So I kind of make my bass. I'm using the Line Six guitar and putting an, an octave lower, and I've mucked around with um, the body and the pickup types and everything. And I've got as close as I can to a Rickenbacker sounding bass with that, and I play it on the guitar, albeit with some latency. But I think you're you're definitely at an at an advantage if you understand both instruments because you'll you'll be able to play on the keyboard and look on that bass thing and understand why it's doing what it's doing. Oh, I see. But, so it enables you to make sure that you you know you're using something that would be a proper bass sort of voicing, I suppose. Yeah, it's yeah. the contact to player engine we're talking about, as opposed to the contact to sampler instrument. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, is the sort yeah. of the, the embedded. Well, the, right. this, yeah. no, 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 Rich. It, it, the, the black bass is released for Contact Two Point Two, is it not? Right. It's it's for yeah. a full fledged version. It's not a self playing yeah. uh, uh, application. I see. So you have to have Contact. No, no as well. it requires. Yeah, it requires the Contact engine uh, right. to play. Uh, Although it's ninety nine bucks, you need to spend. I don't know how much the Contact Two factor that in as well. It's not that much these days for no. a full fledged sampler. Yeah, nothing, about three hundred bucks. Nothing really is, States, is it? I have a question for Rich, actually, whilst we're on the subject of Bernard Edwards. I remember seeing an yeah. interview with, um, with Niall Rogers a few years ago, and um, he was referring to a story where Bernard had been asked by Bassist magazine or, or some such what sort of strings he used on his bass, like the implication being that this was what his sound was created by. And I think he, he just quipped that he had exactly the same strings on the bass when he bought it, basically the same set of strings. That was his gag. Oh, sure, yeah. The response is, I don't know what kind of strings come on a Music Man bass. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> is that really true? Is that what he said? That's, that's the way I've heard it. I mean, I do know that when uh, we last played together that he was using the strings that were on that bass for as long as he had the bass. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> we had one of Bernard's basses in Warren's house, which I think um, he gave to John Taylor. You know, John didn't like it at that point. 
So it stayed in Warren's house for maybe three or four years. And there was this whole thing between Warren and Nick. It's like, don't let John have it back because he will change the strings. And they, they seemed to want to keep the strings that were on it when Bernard gave it to them on there. And I think John did eventually change the strings. And then after that, it didn't sound as good. So There we go. So um, the part of the sound is old, old strings, perhaps. So the bed, everything's bedded in nicely. Because well, flatwound aren't the brightest of strings anyway, are they? They're kind of fairly, they're not as zingy as, uh, as roundwound. The Scarby thing sounds a heck of a lot like Bernard when you program it right. Thomas really has a handle on it. Uh, well, I think um, head over to scarby.com if you want to uh, have a listen to what they've been up to. And it's, uh, it really is very impressive. Hi, I'm Josh Cheringell, music critic at Time Magazine. In the history of music, there never was and, and really never will be another band like the Sex Pistols in just the same way there'll never be another year quite like 1977. Well, there we go. That was the uh, the Time magazine um, sort of document. It's like a rich podcast, I suppose. It's a slideshow with a voiceover of kind of lots of photos of the punk era. And uh, just kind of because I was, I think I was in my early teens. I think I was 12, actually. Now I think about it. It was kind of quite a big deal for me. And obviously, uh, living in the UK, it was kind of also quite um, quite immediate and close. Uh, and I just thought, um, you know, this was a bit of a chance to remember because I'm presumably most of us can remember that era and whether we, any of us were in fact proper punks. I imagine, Mark, you probably had uh, like pink Mohe- Mohican and bondage trousers and stuff. Am I right? I, not in 1977, I didn't have pink Mohicans and bondage trousers till I was somewhat older, actually. Yes, so I was, I was a somewhat so. late blossoming punk and probably uh, have borderlined into the gothic thing. When... The Sex Pistols came out, I was 13 years old, I think. 13 or 14. 14 yeah. years old, maybe. I went for the pink fluorescent socks and the plastic beach sandals at school, and that didn't go down too well. Um, took me a while to get into punk, I think, because I was sort of learning Led Zepp riffs and Jimi Hendrix riffs on the guitar at the time. So There, there was quite a lot of punk in Bath, uh, my hometown. This article by Joss Tarangiel, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, it seems to be kind of all based around the, the Sex Pistols and what they represent. I don't know. I mean, I guess they did in the UK, and it seems like they did in the US. I mean, did, did, the, did the Pistols have a kind of big impact in the US? I mean, where did they get exposure? Rich, did you, were you aware of them? When punk hit, to me, and this remains to a large extent, its social implications were not terribly attractive to me. But when I first heard the Sex Pistols record, I was immediately impressed. And when I first heard the Ramones, I was impressed. And I kind of see those guys as sort of the, the flag bearers for this thing. And that everything that came after that uh, was not necessarily any less good, but just owed a lot to the stylistic uh, establishment that came from those two bands i always find it really funny that um the pistols you know were kind of the representative of the anti-establishment and all of that kind of thing and yet never mind the bollocks which is you know the album was recorded at abbey road and for emi and i mean it's a great sounding rock record basically sounds amazing doesn't it it's a, just it is. a really great even sound. today even today that album stands up but it's yeah. that that's the sort of irony of it really dave you were you punky uh I was probably like Mark. I was a couple of years too young, but most of the people I was hanging out with, and funny enough, my missus was a serious, serious diehard. Kings Road charged the um, Japanese tourist a fiver to take your photograph, punk. Oh, really? <laughs> Fantastic. 
<laughs> I wish she had all the gear because, uh, mm. you know, she was buying stuff from seditionaries. I suppose a bit kind of posy-like, but uh, she was buying all the stuff from seditionaries. She got all the bondage trousers, the um, load of the sex originals, clothing, and stuff like that, which must be worth a mint now. Has she still got it? Uh, no, ex-boyfriend nicked it all. It's, it's a weird thing revisiting it 30 years later, but um, it was a real sign of the times in the UK. I mean, the UK was in a mess and there was so much angst and depression and all the rest of it that this just kind of kicks everything into life again. And it was weird because I was, you know, completely into the pistols and the jam. And I always saw the clash as kind of pretenders, but actually as ye- as the years have gone on, in a way the pistols were almost the pretenders, you know, the kind of McLaren stooges, even though John Lydon is still one of my big heroes. Um, but the clash when you listen to their stuff now, it just um, it sums everything up brilliantly. And I think that they're the band that have had the most well, longevity. They wrote, they wrote the quality songs, the quality material, didn't they? The yeah, and I thought they're kind of... The Pistols you know, they're, are they're, almost a bit like a boy band, weren't they? Although, you know, I'm sure I'd probably be assassinated for saying something like that. I think the Pistols' problem was that Glenn Matlock either left or was thrown out, and he was the guy that could write the songs. But his way of going through, like, chords to get to other chords it's just completely it's like the whole signature of the of the pistols sound and that just completely had gone by the time their second album came out yeah i mean they were really a one album kind of act weren't they the pistols and the whole thing was so short-lived but i mean it had such an impact one more possibly ironic note is in 1982 i had the privilege to play on a ramones album mm. oh cool oh. what were you playing rich I was playing organ. Go on, which album? Uh, Subterranean Jungle, perhaps Mm -hmm. it's called, I believe. I know they're very legendary, aren't they, Ramones? It never never quite kind of reached me, though, I must say. I didn't kind of get it in the same way. Oh, man, I saw them in the UK. What a gig, what a gig. I mean, there were people throwing fire extinguishers into everybody else's backs. I mean, just surprised there weren't deaths galore. It was, a, it was absolute chaos. PJ, I suspect um, being the kind of youngest of the group, perhaps punk doesn't have the same um, memories for you, but um, have you come to appreciate any of it since it's now it's 30 years on? Definitely. Uh, in the mid-1990s, and we talked about this before, I was part of a, a punk group that... Uh, uh, in its in one of its earlier incarnations had uh, had achieved some you know some notoriety in the U.S. for having been affiliated with Gigi Allen and uh, we had a lot of fun causing a lot of chaos in in clubs around the Midwest. So we I I, I love it <laughs> every bit of it. It was so broad. I mean, because some of the stuff you listen back and you just think, God, that was that's just like kind of pub rock R and B. I mean, remember anyone remember the Lurkers? I was yeah, just thinking yeah, yeah. about them, yeah. They were just like a bunch of old farts who were wearing, well, what they, they were wearing, they used to wear, didn't they wear kind of like drapes? And yeah. essentially they were just like shawaddy waddy or, or But maybe with safety pins band. in the collar. Yeah, but they put some, yeah. Because the one thing, I mean, I think the one thing that it really, that punk really did, and that was a shame, it, I mean, it sort of blew away the old guard, but it also really devalued the ability to play it was almost like not being able to play was a was a greater asset it was oh, cooler it was very to be cool. yeah than, than to be able to actually play and it took quite a long time to recover from that and i think a lot of kind of musicians who were you know making a living and doing okay just kind of got suffered at the hands of punk quite a lot i, I know many of the old guard that i've spoken to absolutely loathed it when it came out i have to say i mean we pl- i played a couple of uh, 
gigs with a punk band that I was in around the time. It was probably about sort of 78. And the one thing that I did loathe about the whole scene was um, getting spat at constantly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah that was really gross. <laughs> I perfected the art of setting my symbols up in a particular position that gave me a little bit of guard. Yeah, did they go all green and verdigris? Oh, they were disgusting. It was just disgusting. And, of course, as soon as the singer said, would shout out, you know, stop gobbing at me, that was it. It was almost like a cue for sort of mountains of the stuff. To- <laughs> yeah, oh, gosh. You wouldn't want anybody who sung like, I don't know, um, Celine Dion, you know, the long, open-mouthed, sustained note would be a bad idea oh, in front yeah. of a punk audience, wouldn't it? <laughs> I have to say briefly, the school I was at, uh, the headmaster completely frowned upon this style of music, and uh, we got uh, in the papers as, uh, as, as this punk band, and uh, the caption was, Public School Punk is Here, which was pretty awful. And uh, But it turned out that his son was this guy, Robin Egger, who managed a band called The Members. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as we found that out and he was chastising us constantly for this disgusting music, we were like, yeah, but, you know, come on. <laughs> the thing I remember um, most clearly about punk is the because we were at school. We were at a boy, I was at a boys' school. Um, it was it wasn't anything special, but you had to wear uniform back in those days, and it was kind of you know they tried to enforce it strictly. And these the slow creep of sort of of, of of you know taking advantage of the uniform, which was you know you had to wear black trousers, but in punk that was kind of cool. So what you do is you kind of doctor your your um, your trousers so they were sort of so skinny and ridiculously sort of non really school uniform trousers but in terms of the letter of the sort of implementation of school uniform they sort of fit in the bill and the the pulse headmaster trying to kind of counter all of these insurgents into you know kind of into school uniform um issues it was just hilarious it was a constant kind of you know how much hair gel you could get i always remember there was a guy this was a bit later there was a guy in our class um and he um was you know a sort of rough guy and he was really cool and he always had the coolest pictures on the back of his rucksack and what have you and um Adam and the Ants came out, which was admittedly a bit later, but he thought this was the best thing, and he painted a white stripe across his face. <laughs> but what he used was actual exterior masonry paint, and um, <laughs> it wouldn't come. It wouldn't come off. So they sent him. They sent him home. So. <laughs> I tried bleaching my hair with chlorine bleach, and when I was a kid, I had the blackest hair that you've ever seen, and. And I poured this chlorine bleach on my head, expecting it to like go white, and all I did was completely ruined my scalp. Yes, I imagine that hurt a great deal. <laughs> I remember piercing my own ear with a safety pin. You know, that was my sort of rites of passage. I, don't know. I just took my my daughter's twelve, and I just took her for her ear piercing because she wanted them done, and I explained that to her. Big champagne cork on the back of my ear, and a safety pin through the front. Yeah, and, and a, lots a, of ice. ice yeah. Still not right now. <laughs> yeah. It was at 45 degrees with a sort of, yeah, and there was a bit, a bit, a yeah. bit of rust left in there, yes. It defined an era, and obviously, you know, there's there's so much reference to it. I mean, and the Pistols, admittedly, were probably the most public um, sort of PR face of punk, weren't they? Because they were the most extreme. But they were like comedy, weren't they? I mean, it was, it was like cartoon. I mean, you see pictures of Sid Vicious. I mean, I know he was out of it quite a lot, but he did, he must have sort of, his photo opportunities where he just looks like almost just totally gormless. I mean, it's almost like a, you know, a, with pride. But this is in retrospect, isn't it? Because when I was 13, 14 years old, I saw, I saw Johnny Rotten on top of the pops with the pistols and he was wearing that bondage thing. And it just looked like he was hanging off this microphone covered in bandages and union jacks. And I was just like, wow, he looks so cool. 
and I wanted to look like that. But if you look at that same piece of footage now, as a 44-year-old, I look at it and I just think, he just looks like a silly little boy. I mean, it's just so bizarre, the contrast between him being older and him being significantly younger, and whether that's cool or not. There's some great YouTube stuff with uh, Sid Vicious and Nancy in the hotel room, and uh, Sid's obviously completely off his tits and uh, falling asleep mid-interview and all sorts of stuff. And he's constantly dropping his cigarette on her, and she's slowly losing it. I think it's in about three parts, but it's absolutely brilliant. I think that's one thing about punk that was a shame, because initially it was all about energy and, you know, having a few drinks, but then it kind of got darker and into sort of narcotics and that. And that was just, because they were considered the pinnacle of cool, that was, you know, that was the ultimate of uh, irresponsibility, I suppose. It's, you know, they, they really kind of pushed the rock and roll lifestyle to the very limits publicly, didn't they? But surely they were just trying to copy Iggy Pop. I mean, he invented being too into narcotics, didn't he? Uh, no, I was going to say that I thought the one fascinating thing about it, and I will sound like an old git now, um, whereas nowadays everyone's into the kind of designer label nonsense and all the rest of it. You know, the whole punk ethos was just, I'll do it myself. And that was whether you were a fashion designer, an artist, a musician or whatever, everybody was just kind of going, I could do that, I could do that. And people used to make their own clothes and there was a degree of originality about everything. And nowadays I think that's lost. Well, and also fan magazines, didn't they? Everybody used to kind of just get hold of photocopiers and do cut-up, kind of uh, print cut-up and do their own posters yeah, and all that yeah. stuff, you know, which I suppose Snitching to a certain through. degree is kind of where we are with the web now. So, I mean, maybe, you know, that's a sort of legacy that's uh, actually quite majorly world-changing and in the spirit of things. Well, they didn't have loop libraries back then. No. <laughs> I wonder what would have happened if they did. In fact, has anyone released, does anyone know of any punk loop libraries or punk sample sets that would be kind of funny maybe maybe east west after the fab four thing um they could release a uh, abbey road never mind the bollocks thing as well because that would probably be quite that would certainly sound raw yeah, everything in a and e two chord <laughs> the two chord heavy library <laughs> it was a good piece and it just got got me thinking one one of the things that was funny I, there's a guy from bath called pete howard who used to play in a band called eat and before that he was in cl- in the clash and there's a po- picture of the clash it looks like they're in uh, Upper Street and uh, uh, up near King's Cross. And uh, Pete Howe's there, and he's the drummer. Okay. Was that after they split up? Because I auditioned for them after they split up when I first moved to London. It was the Combat Rock era, which some say was a great album. I think it's a great album. Who was the first guy to leave? Paul Jones. No, not Paul Jones. What was it? Together, basically. I think it was Mick Jones. Mick Jones. Mick Wasn't Jones was another because he, he left um, to form Big Audio Dynamite, didn't he? I also auditioned for Becky Bondage as well, actually. I'd forgotten about that. My favourite band out of all this era, it has to be Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. And I used to play that style. And Johnny Thunders was the guitarist from the New York Dolls. And when the New York Dolls fell apart, he um, formed Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. And I went to this Becky Bondage audition and I played that style. And... um, they were sort of all hanging out, and they and they went and got her and said, "Come through here. You've got to come and listen to this guy." And I was sort of playing that style, and then I said, "Of course, you know, you wouldn't be wanting anything in that style because it's, you know, it's all it's all a bit. It's not really punk enough or whatever." I was sort of thinking I was going a bit R and B, so I don't think I got it because I sort of said that I didn't like playing that style, which was the really so the gig. wrong thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> oh dear. imagine because I would have been perfect been like. in her band. Anyway. Never mind. 
Well, guys, that that trip down memory uh, memory lane was uh, fun as ever, and um, I think perhaps. Um, it must be time to say good night or good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. So uh, let's just say um, goodbye to Dave Spears from G4 Software. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's G4. Is it G4 Software.com? Uh, yes. G4 Software.com. John Musgrave. Thank you very much, John. Actually, you were really quiet there. You didn't say anything well, about I- punk. Hold on. Yeah, well, you know, I was a bit younger than you guys. You know? Okay. <laughs> John Musgrave, thank you very much for uh, <laughs> for hanging with us, and um, we wish you every um, joy in your forthcoming and ongoing projects. Cheers. Mark Tinley. Hello. Oh, no, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Mark. And if and in my two-year-old's part of the world, it's time to wake up. Oh, so I'm still asleep. Get him up now. My, my four-year-old woke up at uh, ten past six this morning, which wasn't fun at oh, all. Oh, lovely. Rich Hilton from Connecticut. Another wonderful morning spent, gentlemen. Thank you very much. May you have a great day. And as may you, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. <laughs> thanks, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Great. Well, thanks, guys. And um, we'll see you next time. Next week, in fact, is our Sonic Talk number 60. So uh, we're not retiring. Um, but we will be, I don't, I don't think we're going to do anything special unless we can think of something special to do between now and then and organise it. <laughs> we are. We're going to do Talk Like a Pirate Day. Oh, yes. That next week is International talk, talk Like a Pirate Day. That's right. Do we'll we have to dress it. up? Uh, you go to talklikeapirate.com <laughs> and, and you will see what it's all about. And you have to talk like a pirate for the whole day. Maybe next week we can, talk, we can uh, call, call the show talk, Sonic Talk Like a Pirate. And I'll drink Arr. rum for the entire episode, as we all must. Whether you, whether you choose white or dark rum is up to you. An overproof or underproof uh, is entirely your choice. Can I drink alcohol-free rum? Yes, of course you can. You can have rum and raisin ice cream, if you like. Anyway, thank you very much. The Sonic Talk Show is uh, sponsored by Yamaha UK. Uh, thanks to them for continuing support. Um, and remember, folks, if you want to get in touch with us, all you've got to do is Skype us on the handle Sonic Talk, or you could call us. We've got a couple of Skype in numbers. One's in the US, and that number is 312-376-8089, 312-376-8089. Or in the UK, we've got another number in London, 0207-870-8616, 0207-870-8616. Or you can email us at sonictalk at sonicstate.com. We welcome any comments or any other input you want to bring to us and um, hopefully we can use it on the show so keep it clean thanks for listening sonic states.com